Gale's open, they're away in the Golden Slipper, there's a great start, and Mick Mitt Basque on the extreme outside is about the first out, Jack Boyle. Jackler on the outside, lunging, but Catlin opening just in front, Jackler trying desperately, can't reach him. Catlin opening has lasted to win the Doncaster by a hit to Jackler. This Iron podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Inglis. The Riverside Selling Auditorium will be buzzing on the 6th and 7th of April when the world-famous Inglis Easter Yearling Sale will capture the spotlight. 466 yearlings will be offered, including siblings to 161 stakes winners. The progeny of 169 stakes winning mares will go under the hammer, while the list of stallions represented over the two days will appease the hardest marker. Sentimentalists will pay particular attention to the final draft of the legendary Reduce Choice, who died at Arrowfield Stud in 2019. Speaking of Arrowfield, the famous stud tops the Vendor numbers with 49, ahead of Coolmore with 40, Widden with 28, Sedgenhoe 23 and Yarraman Park 22. English Easter acquisitions in recent years include the Autumn Sun, Exceedance, Loving Gabby, Merchant Navy, Esther Jarb, Trapeze Artist, Russian Revolution and the Oaks winner, Personal. The countdown has begun for one of the world's greatest thoroughbred auctions, the 2021 English Easter Sale. On the Monday after the completion of the 1987 AJC Autumn Carnival, High-profile bookmaker Bruce McHugh made a few relevant phone calls which by the end of the day would set tongues wagging throughout the racing industry. After 25 years as a bookie in Sydney, Bruce McHugh was handing in his licence. His betting duels with Kerry Packer over the previous five years had generated turnover never seen before on Sydney racetracks. As an example, Bruce's turnover over the four days of his last autumn carnival was $100 million, courtesy largely of Kerry Packer. These were undreamed of figures for a bloke who started his bookmaking career at age 21, working at Bulleye, Hawkesbury and Penrith Trots, fielding on the away meetings. Bruce is now 76 He still has a few business interests, including the ownership of the thoroughbred stallion Arlington, but in the main, he and his wife Charlene are living the quiet life. There's plenty of family interaction with daughters Tiffany and Angela and son David, who between them have provided the McHughes with six grandkids. It's a delight to catch up with Bruce McHugh on the podcast. Bruce, thanks for your time. Great to talk. Thank you very much, John. You've given a great introduction there. You couldn't call yourself an obsessive racing fan these days, but you still watch quite a few on Sky Racing. John, it's pretty hard to get out of your blood. And uh, when it comes Sunday morning, it's inevitable that I'll turn the uh, the paper over to the racing page and uh, and just read things that I've got or have had an interest in, mm. and uh, I'm still interested in. You obviously follow the progeny of Arlington pretty closely. I spotted you at Randwick one day last year when one of his sons uh, won a Tab Highway race, horse called Gordon's Leap, 
you cheered louder than anybody. Well, put it this way: if you if you're uh, excited at a race course and you don't show it, I think there's something missing. Let me skip a couple of generations here and talk about your paternal grandfather, Jim McHugh, who came from England as a ward of the state in the 19th century. He became an apprentice jockey in Sydney and he did something pretty special, didn't he, in the saddle? Johnny was, um, my memory of him was he was just a beautiful man, had a very, very uh, lovely attitude, but he was very deaf and on my memory of him, he was very, very small mm-hmm. and I can only imagine that when he walked off the boat and they were trying to find places for uh, for orphans, mm-hmm. uh, the only place he could get a job, I would imagine, would be in a stable mm-hmm. because uh, he, was, he was very, very light um, and light-framed and he had the distinction of riding for his master, a horse called Robin Hood, mm. in the Epsom in 1898. Goodness he me. was 13 years old. Uh, it was 33 to 1, so it probably wasn't considered a chance. And I can only presume it jumped out and led. And because of its low weight and because uh, it probably did it easy in front, it won the race. And uh, Bill Whitaker at a later time in my life, got me the photograph from the Herald mm. on that day after or the day of the race and it showed uh, a photo of um, Jimmy McHugh in his racing silks and I couldn't believe how how much he resembled my father. Goodness um, And, uh, yeah, he wasn't, put it this way, he was never what you call a really success but he trained horses all his life and um, as I said he was just a a delightful person unbelievably uh, but very deaf and um, and just a beautiful person. Well Bruce you mentioned your dad Bill McHugh who was also a bookmaker he died in 1999 at age 84 and I'm proud to say I knew him very well Bruce he had a terrific temperament much like his father as you've just explained, and I never saw your dad without a smile on his face. John, he uh, he was a person that was very lucky in life. He very he had very little illness, and his one love was was racing. And uh, he did an engineering degree um, when he at night school after he left school, and eventually uh, had a. Uh, uh, sharing in an engineering business, but his one love was racing, and um, it took him years to get a license to work in the metropolitan area. But uh, from the time I was probably 11, 12, 13, uh, my memories of it were that of a Saturday morning he would get up at three or four o'clock, uh, meet up with his staff, mm-hmm. and they would drive to. Uh, country race meetings, the other side of Bathurst and the likes, Mm. and he would field there on Sydney and Melbourne and uh, we would get home very, very late or early on the Sunday morning. Um, So he he certainly had a love of racing and he had a love of bookmaking and when he eventually got into the flat at Ramwick, it didn't take him long before he 
became a paddock bookmaker and he finished his time as a rails bookmaker, but I've never seen him ever really concerned. He wasn't uh, – bad trots didn't worry him. Uh, as long as he could get to a race meeting and put up the prices for the next <laughs> event, <laughs> he was up and running. You've mentioned the flats at Randwick, an historic landmark, and for those who are not aware, it was the infield area which attracted thousands of people in the good old days. It cost you five bob to get in. You could get a cheap feed. There were tote facilities and plenty of bookies and didn't it have some atmosphere? Oh, look, John, it was just a very, very interesting place because there were no videos in those days, so everyone in the flat could only listen to the races and the only thing we saw was the horses coming up the rise and uh, the last probably 100-odd metres uh, to get to the post. But there was there was a thrill in the air in every race at Randwick from the flat. And uh, I think people then progressed. If uh, I, I know it was my habit when I was uh, underaged. Uh, if I backed a winner in the flat, I'd progress to the ledger mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> because you had the extra money. And if you really... Uh, had a reasonable win, you'd even go into the paddock at the extra cost. But mm. that's uh, that's a, a light years away. That's light years gone. Mm. The flat closed in 1976 for those interested. Uh, the buildings Goodness. were demolished and replaced by two or three feature lakes and a big fountain that bubbled away there for, for many, many years. It's probably still there. John, you've you've surprised me, and I didn't realise in mm. 1976. Yep. Yep. Well, put it this way: in those days, it wasn't unusual to get crowds of a Saturday at at most race meetings. I presume either side of fifty thousand. Mm. I know that when I was very young and before I was a bookmaker, when I went into the paddock, naturally enough, a lot of people like myself gravitated to the betting ring, which was very very which was huge, and uh, when the race came about, everybody would gravitate to the front of the stand, Mm. and I can remember clearly um, moving with the people and thinking if I wanted to go back to the betting ring, I'd have no chance because the crush of people was such that everybody progressed to the front of the stand till the race was over and then progressed back to where they went some to the betting ring, some to other places, but it was it was just a uh, it was a time in history that's probably never going to be repeated. But it, it, it was a beautiful time. It was a beautiful time, Bruce, and those of us that had the good fortune to uh, be a part of it will never forget it. Now I've got to pay tribute here to a very special person in your life, a lady called Hilda Allen. She was your maternal grandmother. A great family woman, a great housekeeper, and an illegal SP bookmaker (laughs) (laughs) at Auburn in Sydney, a Sydney suburb. That's right, and it brings back beautiful memories. (laughs) And you've got to also remember, John, that SP bookies, even even SP betting was illegal, Mm. but it was condoned in a brackets. Yes. Um, (laughs) It was never – if you were – were ever um, at a later time after being an SP bookie, it, it was mentioned when you went to get a job or, or something like 
that it never came against you because um, they were just fulfilling a uh, a part in society that uh, that was being neglected because the only place you could have a bet was on course. Mm. And you've got to remember, Australia's a very big place and most people could never get to a race course. And with the broadcast, which was a Saturday in particular, it was just um, the only sport in Australia at the mm. time of a Saturday was racing. That's right. And... and uh, I can remember my grandmother had a shop in Northumberland Road, Auburn. It was a mixed business and she sold fruit as well. <laughs> and uh, of a Saturday afternoon, if I was in the shop behind the counter, people would, her customers would come in and those that wanted to have a bet would have the note of what the bet was with the money wrapped up in it, and they would just pass it across the counter. <laughs> oh, <laughs> me. she did that all her life to my memory. Mm. Well, Grandma always had a quid tucked away. You'd bite her for 50 quid or 100 quid every now and again. But when you were 17, you bit like a white pointer. You asked her... For four thousand eight hundred pounds, that was around about nineteen sixty. That was That's a correct. lot of money, Mister McHugh. Well, it was, but John, I, I was buying a milk run. I just <laughs> yeah. left school. I was seventeen, and uh, in those, I think it's probably similar now. If if people had faith in you, and she was a a, a lady who who. Uh, never spent very much money and she had a very good business both the shop and the and the SP the other one and, yeah <laughs> and she and she never refused people if people needed anything she would always give them what they needed and i was probably one of the one of the, the beneficiaries because Every time I got into trouble gambling, she was always the one that bailed me out. But I can say <laughs> that I never ever owed her money long term. It was no. uh, it, and, and the faith that her and my aunties had in me was such that uh, I never ever thought for a minute I'd never not be successful. It was even when I was gambling. There was never any thought that I'd fail, even though I, <laughs> even though I did go broke, and, uh, and it took me several months to pay off the debt. Yeah. But, uh, but John, I think when you're that age and you've got the world in front of you, and you know what you want to do, and and you know that you've you've got the capability of being able to do it, never ever knowing that I'd get to. The, the stage that I got to, but um, that's evolution. That um, that's when you get on a train, you don't know where it's going to stop. Mm -hmm. You were twenty-one years old when you finally took out a bookie's license. Was it hard to get, Bruce? The waiting list would have been a mile long in that era. No, during that era, John, I think it's still the same now. Firstly, you had to get a guarantee, which which you needed to apply for a licence. So City Tats was, uh, was the main guarantee at the time. Most of the bookmakers that I knew were members of City Tats Club and they and with a guarantee, you'd, I think you'd invest, say, £200 and that would give you a guarantee of 2000 And after you've got that 
guarantee, then you apply to either the Trotting Club or Greyhound Club or the uh, Racing, I think it was um, Sydney Turf Club and the AJC were both independent, um, but the Provincials were another independent body. And uh, wherever you could get a licence, you were then able to apply to work on the days that uh, they had race meetings. And um, that's that's how it all eventuated. It wasn't hard to get a licence in those days, but it was very hard to get into the very good businesses such as the the, uh, the Rose Hill, Ramwick, Warwick Farm and uh, Canterbury. Mm. Um, that was... Um, Probably one of the. Uh, you had to wait. Uh, yeah, you had to, you had to wait, and you had to prove yourself, and also um, you had to be able to uh, to give the powers that be the confidence that uh, you'd be a uh, an advantage to their opportunity or their their operation on course. Well, you started at the trots at Bulleye and Hawkesbury and Penrith. What meetings were you fielding on? I was fielding on Sydney and Melbourne at the time and it was just after the teleprinter was introduced on course. Uh, I think Arthur Browning was one of the people that instigated or was one of the instigators behind that so that if I went to Hawkesbury, I'd put up a a set of prices on two boards, one Melbourne, one Brisbane, and as the prices came through on the the phone, which was in in the brackets, the teleprinter as we – eventually knew it, um, I would put the prices up and there was as much interest in particularly Melbourne as what there was in the locals in most cases because, um, as you remember, John, the last several pages of every paper was filled with racing information. Mm. It was Racing was far and away the biggest sport. The others... Cricket and race, uh, cricket and football, and other lesser known, lesser used sports, they all filled in behind. They never, they never interfered with with racing. Racing was the was part of our history. Mm-hmm. Television, of course, has brought those other sports to prominence we'd never dreamed of. Now, Bruce, before we leave the trots, you were one of several well-known bookies to work at Harold Park in the days of the big crowds. And it took you a while to get in there too. John, it did. It was a very lucrative licence. My father got in. Uh, that was the first major licence that he was able to to um, obtain. And he used to go there for Friday night. And naturally enough, me being um, a schoolboy, I'd go along just for the, uh, for the ride. But... Um, after the trots were over, and it was, as I said, it was a lucrative business, um, he'd get up the next morning and then head off to one of the country race meetings, no matter where it was, no matter how far. But Harold Park was the was the linchpin for his um, bookmaking business. Bruce, a lot of our listeners will be surprised to hear some of the big-name bookies who fielded on the trots at Harold Park. Well, there were the two waterhouses, Jack and and Bill, the the, the two brothers, and then you had uh, an uncle of mine 
who was a very big trot bookmaker, uh, volume-wise, was a fellow called John Allen. Mm. Um, there are other people like John. My memory's not not uh, not uh, bring them forward, but uh, mm. there were they were very big names in the bookmaking industry. It was it was it was the uh, par excellence as far as uh, trotting was concerned in Australia. Mm. And of a Friday night, I don't think very seldom they ever got less than 20,000 people there. Mm. And uh, they had bookmakers in the flat and the ledger. And, and uh, John, it was just, a, uh, it was just a, uh, uh, an unbelievable spectacle. And it, it had enormous following. And enormous support, and uh, the the trainer drivers that were around in those days, I can remember Bird Alley, and um, he had a horse called uh, App App Map, yeah. Map, and uh, then you had Percy Hall, who had a horse called Rabans. Now I know most people wouldn't remember those because I was only a teenager when they were were racing, but uh, the the Trotting trainers were as well known as what the jockeys and the racing trainers mm. were. Oh, and they all had their fan clubs, Bruce. They'd come onto the track, uh, introduced by the course broadcaster back in that era, Ray Conroy, and you'd hear That's a great right. cheer go up when oh, Percy Hall yes. was introduced or Alf Phillips yes. or, you know, all the greats, J.D. Watts, uh, Sutton McMillan was driving there. Um, That's right. In the, into the 1950s. Oh, it was it was a massive spectacle, and as you said, even in the middle of winter, there'd be ten or twelve thousand oh. people there on the coldest night. John, I don't think even in the middle of winter there were many less than twenty thousand there. Mm-hmm. You just had to get there. You wrap yourself up. It, <laughs> it was exciting. It was the place to be. And remember some of those beautiful horses, like. Um, there was one horse that uh, I just can't bring to mind. But he was an odds-on favourite in this night, and he uh, he galloped off the mark, or he was slow away, galloped off the mark, and he was last when they settled down, and they were booing him when he went past the winning post the first time. He then went round the field and led, and they were and they were cheering him for the last two sections, which he <laughs> won the race. Now, how many times did you see that happen at, at Harold Park? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jeers became cheers. Exactly, but I remember that one vividly because being an odds-on favourite, it was expected to be thereabouts all the way. And when it was last, mm-hmm. um, the ones, the people that were uh, had their hard cold cash on it, they were uh, they were pretty pretty unhappy, <laughs> and yeah. it all changed inside a lap. Bruce, we're going to pause for a moment on the podcast to clear this commitment back very shortly. With a freakish rain event changing the profile of the Sydney Autumn Carnival, the championships won't get underway until the 10th of April. Good luck to the trainers who now have to fine-tune the work regimes of their horses to compensate the unavoidable change of dates. Day one of the championships will be well worth waiting for, with Group 1 highlights, the star Doncaster, the TJ Smith, the Australian Derby and the English Sires Produce Stakes. The much-anticipated half-million-dollar New Haven Park Country Championship final 
will see the Bushies given their chance to strut their stuff on the big stage at Royal Randwick on day one. Let's hope Sydney turns on her best autumn weather for the championships now commencing on the 10th and continuing through the 17th and the 24th of April. Day two will feature the Longines Queen Elizabeth Stakes, the Swep Sydney Cup, the Australasian Oaks, the Coolmore Legacy and the Polytrack Provincial Championship Final. The championships will wind up on the 24th with the Sweps All-Age Stakes and the Mowaton Shondon Champagne Stakes. Racing New South Wales and the Australian Turf Club proudly present the Championships 2021. My special guest is former Leviathan bookmaker Bruce McHugh and he's talking about uh, his early days as a bookmaker on Sydney racetracks. Well, Bruce, you finally got a Guernsey on the flat at Randwick, as your dad had been for a few years before that. Uh, you started betting on the locals, on the Sydney races, then on the interstates, which was later uh, to become your uh, your life's work. Yes, John, I, I suppose going to the races as a younger fellow and, and being a punter, I was always captivated or mesmerised by um, Jack Waterhouse and Arthur Browning and, to a lesser degree, um, Bobby Deverell, who were the rail bookmakers uh, in the metropolitan area and who worked on Sydney and Melbourne. And um, they had a very good reputation. And the interstate racing was as much part of a day's racing at, at any of the courses as anything else. And I, I always was was captivated by these individuals and I, I suppose it formed in my mind that if ever I had the opportunity, that's the way I would like to go. And um, once I got my license in the flat, uh, I served about 12 or 18 months there on the locals. I applied for the interstate and was granted a licence to work in the interstate. And uh, I worked my way up to, through the ledger and then through the paddock. And it was uh, time to throw up, throw up different things, John. It's interesting because on the rails there were these three bookmakers, as I've mentioned, and they'd been there for as long as I could remember. Mm-hmm. And there was – they were – in my estimation, if you'd have asked me, I'd have said, oh, they'll be here for another 10 or 20 years. Mm. Well, would you believe that Bob Deverell, the youngest of the three, mm. had a heart attack and died? Yes, yeah. And I, I'd been in the paddock for a little while and, and my holdings had been had been uh, up up around the top and there were a couple of us that were, were probably uh, entitled to the position or, or were... Uh, were eligible for it, put it that way. And mm. uh, myself and Bobby Bland were put in, so they, they increased it from three to four and put the two of us on the rails. And so at a very young age, both Bob Bland and myself were rails bookmakers on the four metropolitan courses on Melbourne and Brisbane. And, um, and, John, that was a very exciting time, and I've got to say that uh, my whole life working at those four meetings, um, there was never a time when I wasn't 
looking forward to going to the races. It was always a thrilling time. And one never knew what was going to happen next. It was... Mm. Uh, it was, uh, you know, punters came and came and went, but there, there was, uh, there were characters in every regard at the race course, and um, it was, it was a very, very, uh, very, very uh, exciting time. Exciting time in every way. Mm. It was so different then. Punters didn't have the start they've got today. Computer form and speed maps and. A massive amount of information. Is it any wonder the bookies' numbers have dwindled the way they have in recent years? John, when I started, there were I. It was just before the, uh, or just after the, the legal eagles came into being, and they were the first group that I can remember who actually found a way to take photographs of the races, say at the four furlongs. Uh, the six furlongs and the start and the finish. And as a result, they were the first group of people to actually be able to do what we call form. And as a result, um, before that, the punters were really up at it all in front of them because there was nothing to to really measure a horse on unless uh, you were tidying with a stable or, uh, and the like. But uh, nothing – there was never any way to gauge a horse's ability compared to an, another one. So I was one of the lucky ones that was a bookmaker during the period when the punters were in, more in the dark than they are now because in nowadays, once you've got a computer and you've got a, uh, a – a, 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 what do you call it? A, a computer set up that uh, measures horses against horses or compares mm. them. They are impossible. The, 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 the experts that are around now, they make a very good living out of just being form students. And horses are no different to athletes. Whatever they can do, it keeps showing up exactly the same in form and if they put together and add the uh, the advantage of a good draw or a, a bad weight or something else or whatever else comes with it, and there are people out there now, as we all know, who have made absolute fortunes from being punters on horse racing. Now to the part of your story that most listeners will want to hear about. It was the early 1980s. You were working on the interstate meetings on the Melbourne and Brisbane races at Rose Hill. In walks the big fella, Kerry Packer. He asks the bookmaker stationed right next to you for 40000 to 20000 about a hurdler in Melbourne. The bookie knocks him back. You immediately tell Kerry Packer that you'll be happy to take the wager. What did he say? Do you recall? Yes, he 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 could see that I was I was very keen to take the wager that the other bookmaker wasn't keen on on accepting, and he looked at me. He said, "Do you want it, son?" I said, "Yes, thanks, Kerry." So they were the first words that we ever exchanged, mm-hmm. and um, it went on from there. Uh, that was the start. Nobody ever knew where it would end. And I suppose um, 
because of Kerry of who he was and and the businesses he was in and the uh, ability he had in in making them uh, successful. Um, I, I think looking back now, I never expected to have um, been involved with someone that was um, that was as exciting to be dealing with as what he was. Mm-hmm. We should point out at this stage, Bruce, that Kerry Packer wasn't at the races all the time. He frequented the the big carnivals in the autumn and spring, so when he did turn up, you knew he meant business. Yes, I, I, that's a good way to put it. As everyone would know that knows him reasonably well, he was an avid fan of foot rugby league and cricket. They were they were his, I, I would presume, his main two passions. But being being a, a race follower as well as his father was, uh, he liked to get to the races when there was no football on. So it was between seasons. And when he'd come, he always had his offsider with him, a fella called John John Rogan. Rogan, Rogan yeah. yeah. Yeah, and Rogan was originally an SP bookmaker who Kerry had bet with uh, probably when he was underage. Anyway, they became friends and uh, and Kerry had come to the races and uh, John would always be with him and um, Kerry liked to bet in every race. So <laughs> when it was the Melbourne race coming up, he'd always be um, he'd always be looking at the Sydney Morning Herald over the top of his glasses, reading the form. And as they were going into the boxes, he'd say something along the lines of, uh, uh, "John, put me a hundred thousand on Peter." Mm. And uh, John Rogan. There was probably five bookmakers that he bet with on the interstate. Mm-hmm. He would run to the five of them and ask for twenty thousand on each, and some of them bet him, and others cut him back, and so forth. Mm-hmm. And usually by this time the race had started, and I could see that John hadn't been able to get the full hundred thousand on. Mm-hmm. And me being young and aggressive and confident. I and call a, him and over. a gambler at heart. Well, very much so. <laughs> yeah. I call him over and say, John, how much do you need to more to go on? He'd say, yeah. probably 35000 mm. I'd say, I'll take it. And, John, <laughs> by this time, the race, is, the race is well and truly. So <laughs> it was – but there was no – there was no um, – anyone taking advantage of anything because yeah. Kerry had, say, had told John the bet, but he had a bad habit of, of doing it very, very late. So mm. he never – I don't think he ever bet early on a race no. or the only race he ever bet early was when he, he backed his own horse in the – in the um, um, Golden, Golden Slipper. Yeah. Christmas tree. Christmas tree, yeah, he had seven yeah. million to two million, and that was just after he entered the course. Mm. And I presume it was because he just wanted to have the bet and and not worry about the about what was going on. But mm. other than that, he never wanted to bet before before they were just about ready to jump. Bruce, you've always said there were two Kerry Packers: the one before he sold Channel Nine and the one after he sold Channel 9 to Alan Bond. He had plenty of spare cash then. 
John, it was it was a revelation, and I suppose mainly because I was involved in it. But um, yeah, if Kerry had a bad day at the races and lost a few hundred thousand, that was a, that was you know a bad day. And uh, um, I remember a day at Warwick Farm that he, I think he lost. He lost some hundreds to thousands, and he came to me halfway through the meeting and said, "Bruce, I'm leaving the course now. I'm on my way home, and I'm going to London tomorrow for six or eight weeks. Do you mind if I leave the settling till I get back?" And mm. naturally enough, it, I had no reason not to say anything other than that. Mm. But I thought to myself afterwards, and it was a it was a sign that there was no animosity, or we both weren't trying to. Um, to outdo the other, or, or no, you know what I'm getting at. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, because I thought to myself, if 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 it, the positions had been reversed, I would have had one of my staff ring the next day and say, "Look, uh, Mr. McHugh's had to go to London. Mm-hmm. He'll be back in eight weeks. Will it be okay if he fixes you up when he gets back?" So that to me was a was a very personal trait that I observed in Kerry and and all my dealings with him were similar and I've got to say that I've never had anyone easier to deal with but uh, I think he was probably a different person when he was a business person I only saw the one side mm. but referred to after after um, he sold Channel 9 and here again, you've got to remember, John, he only ever came to the races just a few times a year. And this is before mobile phones were available. And the only way for people in a brackets to bet was to come to the races. So if he was at home, he couldn't bet with me on course. He would have to be betting with SP bookmakers and so forth. But anyway, to cut a long story short, um, after he'd sold Channel 9, the bets became um, usually in the millions mm-hmm. and um, and he'd uh, – I knew this particular day that he was going to the races and I rang him at home in the morning and said, Kerry, um, I don't want you to have a heart attack and you don't want to send me broke. What about <laughs> if we – if we restrict the bets to win, say, $2 million. Tops. Yeah, so, so yeah. at any rate, any horse you wanted to back, you could have $2 million to 200000 or yeah. $2 million to 500000 Anyway, the first two bets at Ramey that day on the interstate were, as we said, to win $2 million. And after that, he walked over, and you've got to remember, he was a very tall man, mm. and I'm standing on a stand which puts me about nearly 12 inches above the ground mm-hmm. and he's looking me in the eye and uh, <laughs> uh, I'll use the exact words he used. He said, Bruce, this is no fun good to me. <laughs> Let's go back to the old. <laughs> Doesn't sound like Gary at all. <laughs> well, it was – and it was funny, John, because it, there was no uh, – and I've got to say that I enjoyed it as much as he did because mm. um, he was a gambler and so was I, mm. and it was it was something that didn't just start at the top. It worked up, as we said, the first bet mm. he had was 40000 to 20000 and then after that uh, mm. he was betting in, in millions, but it was, mm. it was all relevant. It was all uh, 
it was just part of the, of the process of, of racing evolving. Mm. Now, Bruce, that, that day that you, you mentioned where you cut him back to a, a, a maximum win of $2 million, he was doing $2.1 million coming towards the end of the day. He knew he was in strife. He wanted an even $6 million on the uh, a late favourite in Melbourne. Do you recall the occasion? No, John. It would have been um, – John, I, I only ever um, cut his bet back ever – uh, was um, and and that was a, a bet on the last race at Ramwick one day. Uh, he was very friendly with with uh, Dittman, and uh, Dittman was riding a favourite for Tommy Smith, a horse called Brentano. And I'd finished betting on the day Melbourne and Brisbane were over, and he walked up to me and he said. Bruce, I want to have a, a bet on the locals. And I said, Kerry, I'm not licensed to bet on the locals. And he said, Bruce, I want to have a bet on the locals. Mm. And my mind was spinning and I thought, oh, well, I can put it in my father's book. He was working <laughs> on the rails. So I said, what do you want to do? And he said, I want to back Brentano to win $3 million. And I, you know, that was – that was – out of the blue in those days. This is before it got it got to where it was at a later stage. And I said, no, what about to, let's make it to win a million? And he said, yeah, that's fine. So John Bamford, who worked for me, uh, came over and I said, go up to to the local ring and and work out a price for what what's the best price you can see uh, Brentano and and bet Kerry to win a million and to put it in Dad's book mm. and um, so Kerry and John walked up to the Sydney ring and uh, John came back and said I bet him one point one million to eight hundred thousand Brentano so I said right we'll go and tell Dad to put it in his book uh, to make it legal and uh, Above board, so he went up to my father, and as you've already said, John, my father used to have a a scotch after every race, <laughs> and by the end of the day, and this was a very, very busy day. Um, this was the last race, and uh, so he was he was a little bit inebriated, and and John pulled his his uh, coattail, and John looked and. Dad looked around and he said, Bill, Bruce wants you to put a bet in his, in your book for Kerry Packer. And Bill thought for a split second and, and then stood up and everybody's fighting to get on because the race is ready to start. And he said, stop. And he turned to the to the clerk that was recording the bets and said to Jack Kemp, Jack, one point one million to eight hundred thousand Brentano, and Jack, who'd been working like a navvy all day and was just about, you know, at the end of his tether, he turned to Bill and he said, "Bill, how many so and so noughts are there in that?" <laughs> Oh, that says it all. <laughs> so that yeah. that's but but that's the only time other than that 
every bet he ever asked me for, mm. it was I was I was more than happy to you accommodate him. Yep. Yes, Bruce, yeah. he hated the media attention that his betting attracted. I mean, what did he expect? At one stage, he asked you if you would use a code word. The word was brick, B-R-I-C-K, to represent every million uh, invested, every million in the transaction, uh, two bricks to one brick or whatever. You went to check with the stewards that uh, you, you were allowed to do this. Well, I, I had to get... I didn't know whether it was – I'd never heard of it before, but it was something that he'd come up with. And even though it was – if you're talking in, in in riddles, people still know. But anyway, he wanted to do this, and I went to the steward and I asked the steward, could I record a bet in my ledger instead of being cash, being a brick, and a brick is equivalent of a million dollars. And the steward – thought about it for a while and I think they were you know they were pleased if they could help me but they said no look under the circumstances you've got to just record it as as it is so um, so we went back to that but in hindsight even if it had, we'd have been talking in in riddles everyone would have known because every time because it was unusual and and anything that's unusual john it attracts people's attention mm. so everybody on the course they wanted to know what what someone was doing and kerry was was the uh, talk of the town at the time mm. uh, and uh, you couldn't keep anything secret i had a a uh, uh, a betting sheet that I kept in my top pocket and I used to write the bets on the official betting sheet uh, to keep it quiet. But I can tell you within a second of me writing it in the book, my staff knew mm. and then everybody else around them knew within two seconds. Mm, of course. So it yeah. was it was impossible to hide what people want, wanted to know. Mm. In the mid-1980s, his betting was extraordinary. As I said in the intro, there was one Randwick Autumn Carnival where you turned over 100 million, which at the time you thought was more than the on-course tote held. Yes, well, John, he was an unusual person. As we know, he he loved gambling. He was was an avid... um, better on uh, at casinos and and there was even though he was betting in what we consider large amounts of money they were never really of any um they couldn't have made any difference to his lifestyle no matter whether he won or lost it was the it was the thrill it, and he needed to get that thrill and the thrill to get was only to be got by betting in large amounts of money because uh, I don't know about you, but if I went to the races and I lost uh, um, $50, I wouldn't be worried. But if I lost $5,000, i would be worried. Mm, of course. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a relevant thing and uh, he was there for the thrill of it. Mm. Bruce, I've, this is the point where I've got to ask you how you describe him as a punter. Was he a smart punter? Was he a silly punter? Was he a reckless punter? Was he sufficiently well-informed? 
John, he was he was in a brackets a punter, right? So that fits into a category. Uh, he was well informed. He, when I say well informed, he he wasn't a form student himself. He liked he read the form and, and made his decisions on that. But yes, look, people people because of who he was, people of influence wanted to to help him where they could, uh, if only for their own benefit at a later stage. So mm. he, if there was anything that uh, anybody that was close to him knew, he was always informed of that. But uh, he wasn't a, uh, a compulsive gambler insofar as uh, he didn't – he didn't – if he had if he had a bad day, he knew when to stop. And if he if he was winning, he knew he he, he wasn't a person that played it up. Um, so my assessment would be he was a typical punter. Now uh, the the only difference he was from the smaller punter was that he bet in larger amounts. But mm. he wasn't a fool, um, as we know. Uh, he was. Um, he had some sort of a, a, a an attitude when he played uh, um, at casinos. He had a some sort of a uh, let's call it a system or a a strategy. Mm. And um, with racing, it wasn't it wasn't available as much then as it is now. Mm. So he was just like. 99% of most other people that went to the races for a bit. Mm. Chasers are usually punters who get into trouble. You'd have to and say he, he was a chaser, Bruce, wouldn't you, because he'd bet the square up. No, you, you could probably say that, John, but no, that's not the case. Mm. He, he, he was more of a punter that liked to get a thrill mm. when he backed a winner. Um, and I don't think he probably is, is like a lot of us. Uh, if you're losing, you tend to have a little bit more on to give yourself a chance to get, you know, to to win or to mm. get square. But no, he was he wasn't what I call a chaser. The, the 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 chasers are the biggest worry of any bookmaker because mm. nine times out of ten, eventually they're, they're never going to be able to pay. What about Kerry Packer's emotions at the racetrack? Did you ever see him excited by a win or did you ever see him rattled by a loss? No, I've got to say, John, I've never, I've never experienced looking at him. Uh, for example, when he's watching a race, by my memory, um, he, you wouldn't know whether he had a bet or whether he was backing the horse that was leading or something that was coming home, he was he was very um, expressive. Yeah, he yeah very sedate, um, and he, he had an extraordinary temperament. And I, I'm only talking about the part that I know because if you remember when. Major Drive won the Sydney Cup and it beat yeah. my card. Well, I was leading up to that. This is probably the best story of all. It's the most bizarre story of all. Go on. Anyway, he he uh, came and had seven million to four million on my card, mm. and uh, 
uh, Heath Horse was uh, nine to two second favourite. Major drive, yeah. Major drive, and and uh, he, wherever he watched the race, I think he was watching it with with um, Jack Ingham or something, and. Mm. I'm not sure whether Jack knew that he'd backed my card. But anyway, the long and the short was that after he won the race, uh, Jack said to him, now you're going to have to come down, Kerry, uh, and accept the uh, – and take the uh, – Trophy. The trophy. Mm-hmm. And Ke- Kerry indicated that he really didn't want to do it and, and Jack being Jack insisted he did. So by this time, Jack was aware that he'd backed the – the favourite, which had been beaten by Major Drive. Anyway, he went down and he uh, accepted the trophy and so forth. And and I, I'd been friends with the horse the jockey that rode uh, uh, Major Drive, a fellow called Greg Hall. He rode yeah. a lot of horses in Melbourne for me. Mm. And um, he, he, you know, he was a was really excited, and Kerry was just um, congratulated him and so forth. And it wasn't till later that evening, at a, when they were apparently together, when when Kerry told him, "Hey, I backed the second horse," and that, <laughs> by memory, listening to Greg, it was like it was like the the trapdoor going down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Bruce, it was a surprise to many that he didn't want to be on major drive. The horse had had a terrific preparation. He'd won the chairman's handicap in a walk. He was well-weighted. John Maher had him 110%, uh, whereas Myacard, admittedly, he'd won the derby in a walk, but he was a three-year-old in the Sydney Cup. He was jumping up to two miles. There were a few few things against him on paper. John... Everything you said makes sense, and that's where computers and, and form students come into their own. But John Citizen, which Kerry and I were at this stage, we just looked at, at the comparison of the two forms and without going into them in depth, which you're talking about, mm. it was very hard to think that um, Major Drive could beat um, could beat. Uh, the favourite, Maya card, yeah, Maya card. That was mm. that was just my, and that's the way I summed it up. And I think most people who took the the odds on Maya card thought the same way. Right. Well, he took seven million to four million on. Now, how was that bet serviced? I mean, you you were fielding only on the interstates. Well, that was probably, I think, at the time, probably Dad had retired, mm. and. Uh, I'd made arrangements with um, Dominic Byrne, who was working on the rails. Uh, Dominic would accept his bets mm. and keep a portion of it and then send down to me um, what uh, what part he wanted me to have. And to keep everything legal and straightforward, mm. I would just pay Dominic the turnover on the business that I was given from Kerry that day mm. Um, that was entered into uh, Dominic's book. Yep. Did you ever socialise with Kerry Packer? Did you ever see him away from the races? Not really, no. I, we spoke on the phone uh, occasionally um, and I did go to his office one Monday, but I can't even remember what it was for. It wasn't <laughs> anything of major, um, but while I was there, 
uh, he had a wonderful secretary, um, Pat Wheatley. Yep. And um, when I went in, Pat said, I'll just wait in, in the waiting room. Uh, he's got a few things just happening at the present time. And I said, uh, Pat, I, I, it's not important. I can come back another day. She said, no, 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 just, just wait there. And where I was positioned, it was obvious that the people going to and from Kerry's were – Copping a spray. Well, they were copping something anyway. <laughs> and, and, I, and I remember walking out again and yeah. saying, listen, Pat, I, I don't really need to see Kerry. She said, it's all right. He'll be there in one minute. Mm. Anyway, when the time came, I went in there. And it was at the time that Kerry was was very enthusiastic about polo. So he had mm. his, his riding boots on and a pair of um, – uh, a casual shirt and uh, and jeans, mm. and uh, I was struck by how, when I walked in the door, his demeanour demeanour must have changed completely because whatever had been happening while I was out in the waiting room, it was just evaporated when I got there because we talked about things that were totally irrelevant to his business. And it was at the time that Vic Rail had a very good horse called... Vaux Rogue. Vaux Rogue. And for some reason or other, somebody must have said to Kerry, you can buy this. And he said to me... What do you think it's worth? I said, Kerry, the only only way you'd put a price on it, what it's worth to you for the enjoyment you're going to get out. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the long and the short, I said, I can't. I couldn't help you with that. Anyway, the long and the short it was, I'm sure that when I left the room and went on my way and something else happened in the office, I don't think Vaux Rogue would have even got another thought for the rest of that day. Mm-hmm. Bruce, can I ask you this? In finalising the Kerry Packer segment, I know you made a pledge to Kerry that you would never divulge the volume of his betting. But can I simply ask you this? Did Kerry Packer and his betting over that five-year period assure your future? John, no, it didn't, no. Because he bet so infrequently... And he he did have losses, but they were at the end of the day. Uh, he was uh, if Kerry Packer had never came along, it wouldn't have had any difference to my my lifestyle and Charlene's my wife. Right. Okay. Switching course now. You had seventeen or eighteen very happy years on the board of the old Sydney Turf Club. Three of them as chairman. Were you in favour of the merge of the AJC and the STC? John, my thoughts were very were very uh, simple. If it was going to be good for the industry, yes, I was in favour of the mer- merger. But it, it all depended on what the people that were going to be at the helm wanted to do and... By memory, I was gone by then, but I it, it had it had to be for the right reasons. And John, as you know, with sporting bodies, it's very hard to get people aligned. And um, I at this stage, I don't even know if it was a good or a bad thing, even looking back with with hindsight. Um, but all I know is that 
my time on the STC was very, very. It was, it was a very major part of my learning curve in life for a lot of different reasons. But I was very lucky to have a lot of very, very good, decent people around me, and the staff at the STC was a credit to Pat Parker and Michael Kenny. They were there wasn't one that I wouldn't have been happy spending time with. Uh, and they all, to my knowledge, were very good at their jobs and and, and fulfilled them correctly. So it, it was and we we weren't shackled like the AJC with the running of racing. So we we had more uh, opportunities to expand our business and, and not be held back by other outside influences. Mm. And I think that probably frustrated the AJC because, you know, they had a stack of other things that they had to deal with. And we were always, to my memory, we were always the leaders. And I remember one instance, uh, which John, it's only a minor thing, but we had neglected the the BMW and, and prize money-wise it had dropped down considerably and it was showing up in the quality of the field each year. And I remember going to this board meeting when we had to discuss uh, where we were heading with it and what we were intending to do and it was very evident around the board that we wanted we, – we'd neglected it and we needed to do something – about it one way or the other and it became evident to me that the only way to do that was to add a big amount of money to the prize money Mm. and I said to the board what do you think about us increasing the prize money to one million (laughs) dollars yeah now I can't remember what it was was but I remember I had Pat Parker on one side of me and I had uh, Michael Kenny on the other, yep. and I could see the looks on their faces. They had to they, find it somewhere. They they didn't <laughs> want to have a bar of it. They said, <laughs> we haven't got the money. Anyway, it was evident. We, we went around the board, and every board member wanted to do it. Hmm. And I remember we we just looked at Pat and, uh, and Michael and just said, Michael, uh, find the money. Mm. And, John, you wouldn't believe it. They'd found it within a week. We had the money secured and we were up and running. Mm. You, you, and pulled rank, the, you pulled rank as chairman. Well, no, I think I think what it is, John, I'd been on the board long enough to know that the way that the workings go. Yeah. And and we had a we had a great team. And, and once you threw the challenge out, it was surprising. Mm. There was very seldom any challenges we couldn't couldn't achieve. Racing's got so much opposition these days, hasn't it? I, I looked through an old Randwick race book recently, which dedicated several pages to the alphabetical list of bookmakers who were fielding in the paddock, the St Ledger and the flat. Several pages of bookies. Doesn't happen anymore. No, John, and, and that's that's another case of everything changes in life. Um, as I've said to you once before, the only thing in racing that stays the same is horses go around courses. Mm. Everything else changes, and that goes with every other sport and every other industry. Nothing ever stays the same, and that's why I think people that that are happy with 
with change are always better off than those that try to oppose it. Um, and and John, the thing about it is every every industry and every sport has its fifteen minutes in the sun, and um, the good ones get it a little bit longer. But nothing. Uh, there's just too many opportunities for so many other things for people to do that uh, racing's just fitting into a into a pattern where it's um, it it wasn't. It was in years gone by in the 30s and 40s, it was the be all end all. And probably people thought it would never end. Well, that's been proven that nothing stays the same. You were part of an exciting time in Sydney racing. And in taking on the big fella, you provided plenty of entertainment for the race crowds of the 1980s. And it's been lovely to reminisce about those golden days. Bruce, thanks for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you, John. And this podcast was produced by Supernova Sound. Supernova.